like when I watch playthroughs on YouTube and stuff, um, if people are finishing the game and asking out loud, I wonder if my choice is being remembered. Then I've done the job correctly. Yeah. Um, because I want people to be thinking about that, basically, and whether what they chose even mattered. Because I think that that's it's it's both a like material concern of like they're aware they're playing a video game and they don't know whether that box got ticked in the file. Yeah. But also, I think people are also asking themselves, did that even matter? Full stop. Like ethically. Yeah. On this episode of In the Footsteps of Giants, Richard and Tony sat down for an interview with the YouTube channel Potions and Pixels. They have very kindly allowed us to post this audio as part of our feed as well. This is part one of that interview. Hello everyone! We are super excited about a special interview. We are broadcasting live right now on Facebook, YouTube and Twitch with a very special Indie Game Club episode. I am joined by two awesome folks. Tony and Richard of the game studio Far Few Giants. And, and and Tony and Richard, I know you've seen uh, some of our episodes before, so we have a tradition of clapping it up. So everybody I'm hoping is out there, is including you all, yes, let's make sure to clap it up. We wanna, we're super excited. Keep this environment positive and, and welcoming. So I, I'm incredibly excited to have you all on the show. Uh, for those who are watching right now, you will um, recognize these two individuals are behind three of the games we recently covered on Indie Game Club. Uh, we talked about the Night Fishermen, the Outcast Lovers, and uh, yesterday we talked about the Imagined Leviathan. And we also, early on um, in one of those episodes, we also showed a teaser uh, for one of the games you guys have worked on and are working on right now, Ring of Fire. So, so definitely check out those episodes. If you have not seen those before, those are currently on Facebook and YouTube, and we also broadcast on Twitch. So uh, again, super excited to have you both. I have a a million questions to to ask you all, and I'm uh, and as you guys saw with with the streams and guests we had, we were really animated and excited to discuss and uh, interpret and delve into these games because I think what you all are doing is quite a bit different than the norm, right? I mean, we're used to the indie game space being more experimental, uh, more of an opportunity to explore topics that may not fit kind of the, the mainstream kind of um, game model. But I think you guys take the narrative in, in, a, in a direction that's willing to confront topics that even the, the quirkiest publisher might be, uh, in, in some cases, a, a little hesitant to handle. Um, so I, at first, I wanted to ask you guys a, a, about that. Um, what inspired you? Uh, what inspired you to what, what created your love for games in the first place? And what kind of helped you guys establish this kind of brand of Far Few Giants? Because I think it's very clear now that when we see some of these games, I'm like, that's a Far Few Giants game. Okay, there's several questions. Yeah, there's a lot. You'll find uh, that for me. <laughs> it's a lot. I'm just throwing them out there. Okay. Uh, the most interesting one to answer is probably something to do with. Uh, why we make the kinds of games that we make. Yeah. Um, so, I guess anger, <laughs> mm. generally, um, or uh, existential crisis, just ongoing, constantly boiling. Mm. Um, the 
the way that we got our start really was that um Rich and I were both uh, freelance in the games industry and we bumped into each other at one of the industry events that we uh, regularly go to uh, down on the beach in Brighton, which is uh, south of England. And uh, we were <laughs> discussing the particulars, let's say, of some of the like freelance work that we've been doing uh, and and maybe that we're not finding it that fulfilling. Uh and so we just tried to decide what was the most unique thing, the most um, complete thing that only the two of us could accomplish. Mm. Um, and that ended up, basically, we were looking at Mike Bithell's game, um, Subsurface Circular, mm. in, sorry, in particular as inspiration. So uh, that game, if you're familiar with it, is just uh, a single really well realized 3d scene with uh text that forms the majority of the gameplay and it's like a bit of political in intrigue it's a fairly familiar um robotic parable for race differences essentially um but it had the spark in there that we looked at it as like okay so you can you can make one high production value looking scene have all the gameplay be in text, which is cheap to produce because it's just text. Um, but if you do it well, it can be really captivating. Sure. Uh, and it and when you're making something that small, it can be somewhat political. Um, so that's kind of like half of it of why we decided to start making the types of games that we made, where they were very, very asset light, essentially, uh, without m too much you know fine detail to things. Uh, and most of most of our games have text as a primary primary part of the gameplay sure um and then the other half of it is just generally being um frustrated with the state of the world <laughs> yeah. um and you know i'm i'm <laughs> this is coming at you from 2020 so uh i don't really need to tell everyone anyone that the world is totally balked and uh there's all sorts of problems with it i i'm more political than richard is like when we first started working together uh richard i think richard was looking for someone that had things to say um yeah and that had that was animated about things and i was very animated uh i i did part of my degree in philosophy and then mm. studied screenwriting and then you know I, i'm constantly reading about various injustices and making myself angrier um and then you know like for example maybe we can talk about this in a bit more detail later but the Night Fisherman was literally just a response that we made in a week at first to a tweet by uh, a politician called Pretty Patel in the UK who was congratulating um, herself on closing our borders to all, like everyone. This is before, well, it's not before coronavirus, but it was, um, you know, trading, closing the trade borders sure. as well as immigration and uh, like refugee borders and stuff. Um and they were congratulating themselves on this. And we were like, I d can I swear on this show? <laughs> sure. I, I will say, you know, this is uh, we have our, our corporate sponsor here, but they're very, uh, they're the best corporate sponsor you could ask for. They have like, okay, they've right. never asked for one iota of editorial control. They love what we're doing. So uh, yeah, okay. go for it. So, uh, well, the mood's left me now. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, let's, let's say we were very angry and... Um, uh, so we were like, right, what, what can we do that just basically puts up the middle finger to uh, to Pretty Patel? 
mm-hmm. and so we, we made the night vision. Wow. I think that answers the one part of yeah. your question. <laughs> yeah, and as far as, like, I guess delving a bit more into with you all doing your freelance work ahead, before you all came together to to form uh, Far Few Giants, and we should say you guys are the primary forces behind Far Few Giants, but you do work with other people. Um, yeah. I, I guess notably, we should also mention Richard Campbell, whose information we put into the uh, description who provides um, all the music, from my, my understanding, which uh, all the audio I, generally, yeah, yeah, so including all the sound effects, the like soundscapes, everything, which are fantastic, which are absolutely fantastic. So shout out to Richard. Hopefully, he, he gets the chance to see this because I, I I would love to even talk about that part a bit more as well. Um, Richard, what were what were you all doing? What were the types of projects you all were working on before um, before you all came together to form Far Few Giants? Yeah, yeah. So I was working on primarily VR. Mm-hmm. Um, I at university I studied to be an animator, and my goal was to make animated short films, which you can kind of see the legacy of that in the Night Fisherman and some of other uh, some of other games. It is trying very hard to be <laughs> a short animated film, but with an element of interactivity and uh, and storytelling. I I don't like animating. Uh, a lot of dialogue and so we tend to like skim over that bit and mm-hmm. and uh, we were definitely inspired by things like Frog Detective how uh, they're quite simple in their animations <clears throat> and uh, we we were looking to build like a unique aesthetic that was very simple uh, mainly based upon silhouettes yeah um, I want I want to treat a 3D engine kind of like a Kind of like uh, Flash or Illustrator, like a like a vector editing tool. Um, so I'm just working on the shapes rather than focused on like the detailed textures. Um, I'm thinking more about the colors and the composition of the game. Um, so you can see that, like in the Night Fisherman and the Outcast Lovers, the, the character silhouettes are very very simple. They don't have facial features. That's partially. Um, a restraint we give ourselves, mm-hmm. uh, a constraint we give ourselves, which is we don't have the time and budget to to do complex animations. But you will see as well in like uh, Ring of Fire, we give our characters masks quite a lot. We we kind of like how that um, has an air of mystique to them. Uh, Absolutely. As well, so I might I feel like my job primarily is just taking Tony's writing and making it presentable and commercial for the rest of the world. Like I have to make sure that um, the games look really quality and polished and that the, like the storefronts and stuff look um, like they're professional pieces of work Yeah. so that when people encounter them, they, they take, they take it seriously and don't just write it off as something that's like, Oh, here's another art piece. Uh, it is actually something that is a quality game, um, as well as being like a, an interesting narrative. Yeah, and I want to show. Uh, we're going to show trailers for all of the games we're discussing here in a moment. But I, I think you all nailed that piece where the game, not only because of its short length, uh, you guys kind of. Uh, I don't know if you've coined this or not, but this coffee break type uh, length game of, of 10 to 20 minutes, that's very approachable for anyone to pick up. But combining that with the visuals, the music and the writing, 
it really creates this atmosphere where, like you said, it forces you to take it seriously immediately. And I think uh, that's a really phenomenal job you guys have done where um, you're in the zone immediately. You're taking it seriously. You're invested. Um, and so uh, let's explore that a little bit more. But if you don't mind, first, I want to show the trailer for The Night Fisherman um, from our friends here at Far Few Giants. So that was the trailer for The Night Fisherman, which was the first game um, I experienced um, of, of y'all's work. Uh, could you guys give a, a bit of a description for those who are, are, are watching this for the first time? Um, I, I can read the itch page, but I think, feel like it's better <laughs> to come from your voice, Tony. Uh, can you kind of give a brief description of what this game is about and how players experience it? So... Uh... Fundamentally, and this is something we've struggled with, it's a visual novel, um, which comes with a load of tags uh, attached to it where people think of like <laughs> itch.io, like hentai games. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and it's definitely not that. So it's a very cinematic 3D scene uh, set um, on two boats at sea. You're playing a night fisherman who's out there minding his own business. And a uh, you're approached by another boat with a guy with the arm shotgun that you will have seen in the trailer. Um, the player uh, is experiencing the dialogue, uh, making choices for the fisherman to try and survive this encounter, um, plus other goals that become apparent later on. And um, you're also at the same time able to direct the scene. So mm -hmm. we have a system by which you can actually change between the cinematic camera angles that we've showed uh, that we've set up so if you want a shot to be close up in one character's face you can do that that's your choice um and that's it like they basically comes introduces mechanics tells hopefully a powerful story and then that's the end and it, it doesn't last very long it's you know 10 minutes yeah uh i you know i, I meant to kind of ask you guys a bit earlier in terms of how far we want to go into to spoiler territory or not. So I guess I'll ask you guys <laughs> that first before we, um, I, I, what we said on the first episode of Indie Game Club where we covered this is we, we of course talked spoilers because it's kind of like a book club. Yeah. We talk about it, but we told people that even with the spoilers discussed, you know, with the, the bite-sized kind of format of this, that we just feel like everybody should, should experience it. Um, and that hearing the story doesn't necessarily spoil the experience i guess necessarily yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that's the case with you all but i'll, I'll leave it to you all how far do, would you guys feel comfortable um, i think we should just talk about everything because there's, okay. there's some particularly yeah. interesting things that we we do hold back and that are supposed to hit you like a sledgehammer like halfway through the first one yeah but it, it would be a shame not to talk about these things so. yeah i think you know when, when we have when we have you all here as special guests i, I love that <laughs> so so everybody watching spoiler alert um i would say still continue watch like play these games for for 100 sure all of them they're 
these short uh, experiences that are absolutely uh, amazing to experience. Um, so as you as you said in in this case. Um, you are a night fisherman. Um, you're, everybody who's seeing these visuals right now, Richard, like this is super striking immediately just seeing the color palette that was chosen here. Um, I think your, your choice of using the kind of the silhouettes and the shadows on them and not av- having too much animation to them adds to the scene a lot. I know, uh, obviously, as indie developers, there, there are some technical limitations and time and resource limitations in producing these, especially at the schedule you all are on, which we should say you all are doing one game a month, which I, mm. I'd, li- I'd like to talk about as well. Um, but as far as the the striking color palette choice, was there, w- what was the, what was kind of the reasoning behind that? I think we should both talk about this. Yeah. This this so we butt heads over. Um, Interesting. Let's hear it. Like not in a not not in a we butt heads in a constructive way. Sure. I think we're both necessary in this. But um I I push everything towards the weird and surreal. Mm-hmm. Um so in all the projects, uh Richard will show me like some colours and I'll say, you know, double it, like I'll just go for something that's way weirder. Don't have a background at all. Just mm. make it a single flat color and make the player imagine it in the Outcast Lovers. That kind of thing. And Richard's artist senses tend to um, uh, react to that <laughs> negatively at first. And then like, it'll grumble. <laughs> I'm going to say all this shit while his mic's muted. It'll grumble. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then do it. And then say it's not very good and then undo it. And then go back to it later and like, actually, yeah, this is the best version of this. Um, the same thing with Imagine Leviathan in the black and white. Like, mm-hmm. uh, we had a lot of conversations where I was insisting that like the floor and the fog and the sky and everything had to be just pure white. No, no texture on the ground, nothing. Um, this comes from a place of realizing that we're making a game every month. Uh, with two, people plus extras uh so we're not going to be able to compete with the visual stylings of ghost of tsushima and we're not going to be able to make anything that's traditionally stunning in that in that way so um the best thing we can do is is like be bold use color based like storytelling yeah and um the extra thing that i'm fascinated by is when you remove detail from uh from a piece of art it doesn't necessarily go missing because mm. the player still imagines it in their head so like you specifically mentioned the point about um characters faces and uh, richard was talking about masks before yeah and it's not just because of technical limitation that we put masks on people's faces or uh, shadow them or just leave it featureless it's because when you're reading that dialogue, and if I've made sure the dialogue is very textured and communicates to you exactly how that person is feeling and how their anime should be animated, you don't actually need to see the animations. Like, you fill that in in your head with something that is way better, realistically, than we could produce for the entire game, um, mm. game's length within a month. Um, or even if we had probably a year, like you're going to be imagining better things, particularly in the Night Fisherman where it's in shape. Um, and the same for environments, like the, the background of the house in uh, Outcast Lovers, um, like behind, uh, I've forgotten my own character's name. 
on Mary. All at Mary when um, Mary with the window in the background. Yep. Yeah, so uh, Ola's got the window in the background, and Mary's. Oh on yeah, Ola. Side. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so, but on Mary's side, there's it's just like a purple background with a couple bits of furniture that are floating in a void. Um, but I feel like players don't generally notice that. Like you're imagining the whole space there, uh, in theory. Anyway, I'll shut up because it's an art question. Yeah, Richard, <laughs> I'd, I'd love to hear your your thoughts on this. I do want to give a quick shout out, um, Coinmonger. Thanks so much for the bits. Hey, Layla, who was a guest yesterday, thanks so much for sharing and liking the stream. Really appreciate y'all there. Um, thanks so much. Yeah, Richard. So yeah, this being an art question, what what are your thoughts on this? I, I, I'm loving hearing yeah. kind of this inside information into the process. So originally, when we made the Night Fisherman, we made it in a week. We we produced six games was it six, between six or eight six, games six. six games in six weeks wow um at the very start of at the start of the year and so we are now gradually like working through them and and releasing them over a month but that came with even bigger limitations than you would find um typically in our games so the night fisherman the reason it is so minimal is we really only had time to put in the sky, the ocean, a couple boats, a couple characters. There's about there's a there's like a quarter of the amount of content as there is in even the Outcast Lovers, which feels kind of minimal on its own. Um so I tend to just pull in a bunch of different um assets, like Unity assets that I have at the start. So I would pull in a pre-made ocean shader, um a pre-made sky box. And then I'd tailor it how I want. So I may go in and replace every single texture. I may hack apart the shader and completely rewrite it. Or I may leave it roughly as it was, um, depending on how much time I have. And then I have my own uh, cell shader. So cell is just kind of like cartoon anime style shader that I use on everything, mm. um, which gives me that nice edge highlighting and, and uh, hot, like harsh, solid shadows. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the bulk of it, but I kind of get halfway through the week. I have I have a co a combination of a whole bunch of different random cobbled together assets, and then I go to Tony. I'm like, "Why oh, look like balls?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he's like, "Well, have you have you gone to Pinterest yet?" It's like, no, I've been avoiding it. I don't want to go on Pinterest because I get sucked into it for a day. Is that right? <laughs> I'm going to give you an, a limit of an hour put together a Pinterest board, find all the best hmm. uh, inspiration you can find relating to this topic, pull them together and send me your top three images as, as inspiration. And then what I try to do is just uh, borrow ideas from those images and merge them with um, the assets and 3D models and shaders I already have to create something that is artistically unique and like technically achievable. Um, so actually, if you were to, if you were to Google, uh, the night fisherman, there is a, there is a piece of concept art that I didn't make that I just stumbled across during my research process mm. that has almost the exact same color palette <laughs> by, by, I don't know whether it's by accident or not, but, uh, it was definitely on my, on my inspiration board. Um, and it showed up in a couple of the YouTube thumbnails <laughs> that we didn't create. <laughs> uh, 
so that yeah that was the night fisherman um, there's other interesting stuff about that though like um i think i made this point recently on the on our podcast but i see the way that triple a studios um tend to make things or even like big indies who are working on like multi-year projects for half a million or whatever like they will create absolutely everything they can from scratch mm-hmm. uh and, and it's more like um it's kind of like a classical orchestra or something where everybody is writing or the one person at least is writing completely original music and then they're going and they're getting people to record a completely original recording of that performance capturing it and then that's what they're selling so everything there is like completely original Mm -hmm. whereas what we do is more like how hip-hop music gets made Mm -hmm. so uh we're just sampling basically we take like uh an asset pack from one place um a shader from another a color palette from some concept art whatever like you know structural inspiration from a film or something and we're just slapping these things together in a way that creates new meaning and most of the time none of those individual um uh things unless it's been done very intentionally is like wholly reproduced or even identified sure. in the final product. So like in the Imagine Leviathan, there's a, a boat model that's in there that's in the tutorial area. And um that's like a standard boat model that Richard got from like got it from Sketchfab or something, right? Gotcha. Um and uh but the the work in it was Richard customizing the um yeah the snow like uh layered on top and the, the black and white palette and how that would work and work that was done like you know months or years ago customizing this what began as a standard flat kit shader asset that richard's now using to create uh the cell shaded look so um yeah like it's it's not it's a very scrappy and i think modern way of working it's not the like dream of the like Altair perfect creator who just sits there and like squirrels away and creates everything from scratch. <laughs> yeah, and, and we have a, a couple comments here. Uh, some of them I'm gonna I'm gonna get to at different times, just based on the structure of the conversation here. Amar, I see your your question about outcast lovers, and so I will make sure that when we get to the section on outcast lovers, that we will get to that. Um, Tempest636, who was also a guest and, and is a, a big fan of your work, uh, wrote, if you think about it, nothing is fully original anymore. They're all, uh, they all take some kind of elements here and there from other media, but the final product does have new meaning and originality in its full package. Yeah, absolutely, Tempest. Thank, thanks for that. Uh, Coinmonger um, asked whether the dialogue was written or spoken. Uh, it is written. Is that something... You know, obviously, with any of these things, there's production costs and times and resources. But I think there's something powerful about the fact in this case that it is actually written. So I wonder if if you all, you know, had unlimited money, whether you would actually make the choice of going with recorded dialogue or whether you prefer written um, for that reason of what you said, the, 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 the mind filling in the blanks and kind of personalizing it in that way. What, what are y'all thoughts on that element? Yeah. I definitely prefer written text. Um, I I wouldn't say that I wholly enjoy playing every written game. Like sometimes I find them a little bit exhausting, um, especially if they're like paragraph heavy rather than short snappy sentences. But the way I kind of see it, our games are 
are like a book mm -hmm. but but more accessible to like the new generation because there's interesting visuals because it's got a level of interaction um it's much more approachable and i, I think a good example of that is um white ocean big jacket which we take we took a lot of inspiration from yeah i was right about to mention that yeah um although their their design is a little bit different it's closer to um say old-fashioned cinema before they had um voice where they would have your your text cards and then you'd have your visuals and, and, and then they contrast yeah and they play off of each other yeah um whereas we're kind of acting them out both at the same time as as interactive subtitles um but definitely like one thing you don't realize is that reading text is a mechanic mm -hmm. and when we don't have a lot of time for building a lot of mechanics um having text that is interesting to read engaging makes you think and uh gives you engaging choices um that can sometimes be enough mm. yeah i think it's easier to write uh intriguing text than it is to to be read than it is to write mm. intriguing text to be um listened to uh listening to just feels more passive you, you mm. you're less having to concentrate um yeah like uh it's very easy to just kind of fade away and not be concentrating on what's going on you just kind of allow the story to happen whereas at least with reading it's it's more active you're having to actually use your eyes to look at every single word and for most people say it out loud in their head um yeah and uh and then yeah there is the point about the, the imaginary acting that happens being more powerful than what we could achieve with unlimited budget I definitely try it. Like it would be something that uh, we'd experiment with. Um, and we should say in the, your latest game, the Imagine Leviathan, there yeah. is that uh, there is a voice, and in fact, it's your voice actually. It's my voice. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, for those who are listening and doing a double take, yes, when you're when you're hearing that godly narrator voice coming in, um, or uh, yeah, so, so that that's just me trying to insert myself into the game as a god but <laughs> no not, not really it, it, it suited imagine leviathan better um because the, the content is more poetic and uh is less having to sell you on some emotional state in the voice um so and i, I used to like teach poetry I used to be an english teacher mm. um so i i kind of got some practice at doing that um so i was more comfortable doing it but like narrating the night fisherman or Arakas lovers, uh, it I don't know. I don't. I don't feel like I would have been up to the challenge of voice acting it. <laughs> Rich is just shaking his head very suddenly. Like it's know, tricky too because there it's a different context, right? Like, and and we'll we'll get to these uh, we'll get to these trailers too because I know the audience might have a little trouble keeping up with all the different games we're talking about. But I, I guess the tricky difference is with the Imagine Leviathan, you're kind of this outside narrator speaking onto the experience versus a kind of a tense dialogue between different individuals in the night fishermen or or even in the outcast lovers within a loving relationship right um but still a tense situation so i'd imagine it's a it's a whole different style of kind of like acting and production involved in that as well um yeah there's a couple aspects to it like i have tried doing uh voiceover in game jams before um mm -hmm. But I, what we found is that 
like for our scale and our budget, we can't necessarily get the time with the actors or or get the right actors to portray the emotions that we're dealing with. And quite often we're dealing with really heavy, um, heavy emotions. Yes. So I don't feel like we can do that justice um, at our scale. And I, and I don't want to, I don't want to do it wrong. So I'd rather just leave voice out and, uh, and let people interpret it in the way that they feel is right. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one more technical question we have here before. I, I also want to bring in the Outcast Lovers trailer so we can maybe talk Outcast Lovers and Night Fisherman together. But Coinmonger is asking, uh, keyframe, keyframe animation or mocap or both? Uh, can, uh, I think he, uh, I love the question, Coinmonger. I think it's assuming we have access. I would love, I, I'm sure these guys are loving access to, to motion capture. That would be, that would be awesome, right? <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I, it's, it was really strange. In my previous jobs and companies, we've always had access to high quality motion capture, whether that was like a, a cheap little suit, like a perception neuron or something, which would cost you uh, a few thousand, or whether it would be like a full animation stage. I am trained as a motion capture animator, awesome. um, but but we don't have a lot of time. <laughs> so <laughs> what I end up doing instead is grabbing a whole bunch of not very good animations from Mixamo and then trying to mash them together on a timeline in Unity um, with a whole bunch of different uh, tools that like control their head direction. Um, you can mask different limbs so you can have just a left or right arm animating, um, for example, or just a head and combine them all at runtime and pray to the gods it doesn't fall over on itself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if if we do come back to it um, next year and do like a polished update, I would love to hand animate um, a lot of those motions. But it's just it's just time. Like I I spend so much time building the artwork out for the scene to make one good looking screenshot that what it actually looks like in motion tends to kind of fall by the wayside. Yeah. And Coinmonger's following up with another question. Thank you so much, Coinmonger and everyone for throwing in these questions and comments. We really appreciate it. Coinmonger saying, does unity have good animation tools? I guess we should clarify. I, I did do a little background reading and this is in unity, but for, um, for those watching, um, would you, would you, uh, would you say unity has good animation tools for, for the work you're trying to pull off here? Uh, Good enough. Let's say <laughs> um, could be better. I I think Unity's tools have a have a long way to to go, but hmm. uh, it better better than better than nothing. Gotcha. <laughs> and we should also give a shout out to NGT Queen and Sheila Fung for following. Thank you so much. We really appreciate that. Um, uh, yes, Coinmonger's laughing a bit about <laughs> about about <laughs> Unity there. So let's um. Uh, you know, I want to dive a bit more into the politics of the world of Night Fisherman, but I also feel like it's it's worthwhile to see Outcast Lovers so we can talk about them together and separately. But seeing them both, I think, makes a lot of sense. So if you all don't mind, okay. the next trailer we are going to watch right here is um, the Outcast Lovers, again, from our friends here at Far Few Giants. <laughs>
So that was the trailer for the Outcast Lovers. And again, we have a, a, a couple thoughts here in our in our chat that we will get to uh, momentarily. Uh, but a, a couple quick things, I guess, here. Um, I, you know, you, you guys saw the, the episode where we covered this. Uh, some of us weren't immediately clear at first the relationship between the Outcast Lovers and the Night Fisherman. I was curious to hear directly from you all. Was that... Was that intentional in some to some extent that you guys didn't like outwardly say that this game is directly connected to this game? I wasn't sure what you all were going for there, but if you guys don't mind going into that and then maybe talking a bit about those connections and what you're kind of going here um, with this narrative. Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head when you uh, analyzed it. I think um, you you were suggesting that the games were uh, designed to be played separately mm-hmm. and to be played in any order. And they are. Um, as That's part of us building um, 12 games in a year. Yeah. Is we want every game, even if they're part of a sequence uh, or part of an anthology, that they would be, um, they would have a life on their own and they could be, they could be uh, played um, on their own merits, and then you could discover other works in um, in the collection. I think we can be more frank than that. I think <laughs> I think we can be like we're yeah okay. So maybe this will come up further on in the interview, but we're trying to do this thing where because we are indie and we can uh, just reveal everything, uh, we should. So honestly, the reason why that is in place is because it is important to us that um, we are trying to build a brand to make ourselves able to mm-hmm. do this long term. Otherwise, you know, if you don't make money at any point, then uh, we will just starve. Um, and uh, honestly, when people, when you look at the, the stats for sequels of games, uh, it's a tail off. So like when you play, if you look at the number of people who play yeah. Banner Saga 1 versus Banner Saga 2 versus Banner Saga 2, it's yeah. going to be uh, a fall off, particularly with like episodic releases. Loads of people will start a, like a season of episodic things and then not play the final parts. So it was just built into the interesting the conception yeah. of this whole project that each part had to be completely standalone, enjoyable on its own, and um, uh, it could be basically an onboarding point. So you mm-hmm. could then go and um, discover the other parts. That, it's not entirely like you know artistically bankrupt. Uh, part of the reason I wanted to work in that structure was because of this graphic novel called Day Tripper that um, is structured in that way, where it's one graphic novel but it's like a bunch of different alternate timelines in the guy's life. So it doesn't matter where in the graphic novel you start. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, the honest reason is just like a practical one of we want to be able to onboard people at any point into yeah. playing our games. Um, we because, we yeah. have no yeah we have no control over how Steam algorithms work. Mm. Uh, they could at one point just pick up the third game in the series or whatever, and then push that up to uh, hundreds of thousands of downloads, and that would be great for us. Um, but the game would need to support it, and a lot of the feedback we get from speaking to publishers about creating serial content, which is what we want we want to do, we want to continue to do. Um, is that it's really, really difficult to publish games. Um, 
in a sequence at different times. Like you, you'll see the way don't don't nod are releasing a game. I don't know what it is every week or every month. Um, recently, mm-hmm. that that is one of the hardest ways to do it because you have to ma- maintain that excitement for months on end, uh, which is a mammoth marketing task. Um, yeah. So we're trying to find a different way around that problem. I, I really love and, that. Sorry, keep going. Richard. And and we and we and we are looking into how to do shared save games. But okay, <laughs> we yeah. don't know, we don't know, we don't know how to do it yet. Because that's so. something we talked about in, in the episode as well and kind of made me wonder um you know, it's it's one of those like kind of gamer mind things where if there's not a shared yeah, yeah. Uh, shared mm-hmm. save file that it kind of makes you think about whether your choices are, are maintained throughout um real quick a couple things from the chat here um tony y- y- did you say that the graphic novel was day tripper or day tripper day tripper um amar um and amar i see you as well as tempest and hey madam fun size thank you all for jumping in here a lot of a lot of folks who are are lovers of y'all's content and um please keep those questions coming in um if I don't get to them immediately, know that I promise I will get to all of those questions. It's just I'm trying to I'm trying to slide them in nice and you know in a <laughs> nice and subtle way. Um, uh, Amar sending his love and saying thanks for this. Um, so yeah, a couple thoughts there. Um, I, yeah, I love what you said about that in terms of like being able to experience the content in different ways. And it's interesting when you said that whole kind of tail off thing because we have had instances where like certain. Uh, major explosions of popularity, something like a Breaking Bad, for example, kind of almost had the opposite effect where it kind of shot up once people were able to digest it. In a, in well. A... Okay. okay. <laughs> I didn't know that. We're... Yeah, let's open it up. Go for it. Tell me your thoughts on that. So, 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 yes, Breaking Bad became lots more successful after its first season. It wasn't... Uh, I think like season three, right, is when it got... Like got... Yeah. Yeah. But when people discover it later on because other people are telling them, holy crap, I'm on season three and it's incredible. Sure. They don't start from season three. They start from season one. Great point. So like the the, the viewership stats and the same with the Banner Saga thing, um, where it will almost always, in the, except in the case of weird things like a Call of Duty franchise or something where it's sure. completely not connected, it will almost always in heavily narrative content be that your first episode has to have the highest viewership stats and then it tails down from there so um that doesn't necessarily mean that the success of subsequent episodes can't um get the franchise generally so much popularity that the the, the start episode grows sure. again um but yeah you, you still do get a tail off um so the idea was just to basically nip all of that in the bud and not have to think about it um, and just make it so that you can get on at any point. And what we're trying to add in time for the next chapter is, um, yeah, as Richard said, this this shared save file, so that um, not only will your choices carry forwards, but I I really want to make it so your choices carry backwards. <laughs> so there's things there's things that you can do in like future episodes, um, which may uh, change some you know some single line or a single asset in a previous one um uh so that if you play them out of our release order um it's almost like it was foreshadowing the choice that you later made. i love that idea 
Will um, the player be aware of that? Is this going to be something like a tell a telltale thing? I, I see Richard no. against. Okay, no, I <laughs> yeah. hate that. I hate okay. that. Yeah, <laughs> we, we try to hide everything as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, and, and it if, gives if you some players surprise. Are, like when I watch playthroughs on YouTube and stuff, um, if people are finishing the game and asking out loud, I wonder if my choice is being remembered. And then I've done the job correctly. Yeah, um, because I want people to be thinking about that basically and whether what they chose even mattered because i think that that's it's it's both um like material concern of like they're aware they're playing a video game and they don't know whether the um that box got ticked in the file yeah. but also i think people are also asking themselves did that even matter full stop like epic yeah and it's and it's a slippery slope once you start doing things like Amar is saying in the chat. Clementine remembers this, like a Walking Dead reference. Yeah. There, it's one of those things that once you've kind of taught the players, you know, you've conditioned them yeah. to that when these moments happen, then if there aren't those moments, then you almost feel like, oh, okay, well, that truly exactly, doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah. And so I, yeah. I like what you all are doing on that. Um, I, I have, I, I, you know, I promised I was going to keep this structured, but I'm immediately throwing those rules out and jumping ahead here because of what you just said. Um, with this with this approach you all took when I was playing Ring of Fire, I don't know why, but I immediately was thinking of a show that I, was one of my favorite shows of last year, which was Too Old to Die Young from Nicholas uh, Winding Refn. I don't know if you all are familiar with him. He is the familiar direct... with his work, but I've not seen that. Yeah, he's the, for those in the audience, he's probably most famous for Drive, uh, being the um, uh, his his most kind of most accessible i guess movie that's that's been most widely seen but he's been he's done a, a wide variety his, of things uh, portrayal of uh Hartman in death stranding as well yes exactly yes absolutely <laughs> yeah. you're right about that but one thing that strikes me about that it, it sounds like maybe that wasn't any sort of inspiration there but one thing interesting about his style there is when he released too old to die young which is available on amazon he released it specifically with the idea that you can watch any sort of episode in any sort of order. Uh, and he kind of aided some similar points to what you did. Now, I don't necessarily think, I think if you know his personality, I think that was more kind of a bit of a, a little marketing kind of element there, yeah, a little yeah, bit of hyperbolic yeah. um, <laughs> elements. But I think that's worth mentioning here. Um, all right, well, let's get to some of these questions here that, that reference Outcast Lovers, just because I want to make sure I'm not getting that. Um, so one that um, Amar and Jordan were discussing was, is was Outcast Lovers really in a, in a small town? We came to that conclusion that both of them loved in a small town based on the newspaper featuring the story and writing about Hero Doctor coming home being headline of that newspaper it was either intentional or me and jordan were reaching too far into the theme any thoughts about that in terms of uh, like the, the the setting and, and those elements there yeah it's 100 percent intentional with so mm -hmm. few things actually included yes <laughs> like in the whole game generally whether it's visual assets or uh whatever like if something is present in the writing or, or in the in a visual asset like it is intended to communicate something highly specific that we felt was important. Um, so generally speaking, like literally everything you're seeing uh, or experiencing in those games, like there is, yeah, if it, if it makes you think something that is 100% us trying to get that across, generally speaking. Love it. And Amar is sending his hearts over. He's excited about this. And, and Jono really is saying, ooh, we're getting some extra lore. Love it. Richard, you were saying... 
I was going to say, I think the only one of that, the only um, counter to that is one of your one of your players uh, on your stream encountered a bug where the boy was spinning in a circle, and we only saw that. Come <laughs> up. We only saw that come up on YouTube videos because uh, there's an animation bug where if you leave the game running for five minutes or longer, um, it, it just very gradually rotates on the spot. And uh, mostly YouTubers come across that because they spend a long time setting up their recording systems. And they just leave uh, it on. But we, <laughs> but we didn't we didn't catch it during playtesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's the only non-intentional thing. Otherwise, everything is is pretty much intentional. Why did just you cause... have to tell them that? Why couldn't you just have it be that the boy is supposed to rotate through the back of the boat and that, that has some transcendental physical... There's, there's a similar media. thing in Ring of Fire where uh, Grosvenor will just sink through the bottom of the car yeah. uh, over many, many minutes. Okay, I love that. I'll have to check those out um, again. But... Maybe a future achievement. <laughs> to... But generally, like, if it's in the game, it has, it has purpose and meaning. Otherwise, it would have been cut um we the the funny origin to the night fisherman was that i really wanted to make a fishing game i love i love fishing mini games you remember what the name was uh like beauty ripper that's it yeah yeah (laughs) i watched i watched some youtube video where some guys were like pretending to be australian fishermen playing a wee fishing game and they just kept screaming beauty ripper each other while they were overacting (laughs) pretending to fish uh and like chugging cans of beer so i like wanted to capture that feeling and we have this when we when we're designing uh we spend a whole day just outlying ideas on a whiteboard um so we will throw out a bunch of disparate ideas around a topic i think this one was just random because it was the last one of last one of the the season um and we combined Tony's idea of he wanted to recreate Inglorious Bastards um, in a game, in a narrative game. Oh man, of... did you did you guys see what Amar mentioned that being one of his yeah. favorite movies? Yeah. This, this was this conversation was destined, folks. Indie Game Club and Far Few Giants. This was <laughs> destined to happen. Can you can you elaborate a bit more on that? On the sure. Inglorious Bastards connection, Amar, I'm sure is going to be uh, sending some messages <laughs> soon with his. Um, it's a, it's a pretty. Is a pretty clear comparison. Mm. Um, there's a few people in Steam reviews that like pulled up Tony's script and pulled up the Inglorious Bastards script and compared them line by line. And there it... was like, there's a lot of gotchas <laughs> like, this dev has, uh, has, has, has just ripped off Quentin Tarantino tastelessly. <laughs> so uh, this is bereft of all value. And completely missing the fact that it was like, okay, so ask yourself why we did that. Yes. Um, and then there's like an additional layer of meaning. The, the idea was basically that that scene is perfect and probably, in my opinion, the best scene of any film ever. <laughs> as far as I've seen. Scene. And I've, I've seen, yeah. I guess I've seen quite a lot of films. Um, and, but it's just perfect. Mm. And I love it. And it's burned into my brain. And, um, but I really resonate with it, honestly. Um, and this goes into a lot of the reason, the, the, the moral stuff kind of behind the yeah. Um and the, the world that those games are set in, because I, I really, really understand, feel like I understand that situation because I'm quite a, 
I'm a quite a principled, like moralistic person. Like, uh, I'm I'm the type that like when I see somebody needs help or whatever, like I will always always dive in for better or worse. Sometimes I'm just sticking my nose in where it's not actually needed. Um, but I, I can't help it. I will just try and be a hero when it's not appreciated. Um, and it it means that quite often, like in the UK, you'll you'll see or hear, um, you know, racism or xenophobia. And a lot of the time, there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. And these days in this country, it is the dominant culture, as it is in America. Like the KKK's president is in power. Um, in in the UK, it is you know Farage and the the UKIP people and or the BNP supporters and the Islamophobes won. Like Brexit has happened, um, and uh, you know like. Our, our prime minister is on record calling Muslim women letterboxes and things like that. Um, so that is the dominant culture. And I feel like the farmer, Monsieur Lapetit, in um, the uh, the scene from Inglorious Bastards, he's in a situation where the dominant culture, represented by Hans Lander and the SS, um, are subjugating people around him, but he can't do anything about it. He can't fight because he just died. He can't, like, I can't go out and just, like, fight racists in the street because I'd get arrested and, like, it would tank, like, whatever other life or career opportunities I had. So, um, and also it's just not that black and white because it's just the dominant culture. It's not, like, individual targets. And it's not going to be able to just go out and punch Richard Spencer. Um, so... So, so I think... The choice that the farmer makes, where he can uh, he can try and um, shield people, um, but fundamentally, his choice only comes down to: um, do I do I sacrifice myself for basically no gain, just to show solidarity with people, or do I capitulate and let the um, the fascists? Um, uh, into my home and tell, tell them where the people are and all that kind of stuff. That choice, I feel like, is something that we make basically every day um, uh, in the UK and probably in the US as well for anyone who, I don't know, has the same political leanings as uh, as I do. Um, there's always a choice to be made about whether you actually like stand up and scream about the horrible, horrible shit that's going on around the world that millions of people in concentration camps in the um, Uyghur region of uh, of China right now, for example? Or do you just go along with your life and, like, you know, play video games? Um, so, anyway. <laughs> I think we'll... So that, that's where it comes from, right? Like, yeah. that's why I wanted to recontextualize that scene in the modern day, in the, in the English channel, in response to Pretty Patel's tweet, because I felt like the farmer, and I felt the, I felt like you know one two percent of the anguish that that character is feeling mm. in that scene, um, because there's really nothing that you can do. Like, yes, you can go out and vote, and everyone should go out and vote. But at the same time, in this country, Rupert Murdoch's um, prime minister has won every election since the eighties. Like there's, it's bought and paid for. 
So, anyway, I'll stop talking because no, uh, you both look very serious. <laughs> no, it's, I, I mean, I think that's, you know, no, this isn't any surprise. I think for anybody who's played these games or knows about them, this is what we would expect exactly. So it's important for us to understand this kind of like foundation on which this is built. Um, a couple things uh, before we dig into that, I do want to mention a couple things here. Amar says, to be fair, being in a game put me more into that chair as the fisherman than watching the farmer do it. John O'Reilly says, yeah, if it isn't the best, it's certainly up there. Uh, and Amar saying, same with Outcast. Uh, lovers, we all want to help, but raising a child is a different moral life choice. Um, so mm -hmm. there, there's a lot to unpack here. Richard, I think you were wanting to jump in. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of things. So the first one is the choice you make at the end of The Night Fisherman. Um, there's a lot of confusion about that. Especially Can you elaborate saw... up for those who... Um aren't familiar with that choice uh i'm not sure i i can do it justice yeah i guess <laughs> okay so <laughs> the choice you have basically is uh for anyone who's not played it the night fisherman is not really a night fisherman that's a cover and uh, in the back of his boat he has a immigrant child um who he's uh, transporting from calais uh, in france and uh the the guy with the gun has already clocked this and figured it out and um, yeah. uh, basically says, I know you've got somebody under there. He has the shotgun in hand and says, uh, you can either take the rope and go into the water, in which case you'll live. Um, well, he, he he doesn't phrase it like that. He tells you to do that. And yeah. then your choice is either to follow along with what you were being told to do and allow presumably a horrible thing to happen to the child or to show solidarity with the child and try and comfort them and um, uh, protect them. But either way, uh, the um, Churchill, the guy from um, the EPG, which is the uh, fictional racist group, I say fictional, but barely fictional racist group that's, uh, you know, the guy with the gun, uh, he shoots the boat through regardless and the kid is in the water. Um, your character either is like dragged out of the water by him or just gets shot when the boat gets shot uh, if you choose to stay in. So that's the situation anyway. Um, you don't really change the child's fate. It's about um, what you should do when you can't affect real change. Whether you still should act in a way that's like morally um, consistent with your values. Anyway, Richard was going to say something about the choice. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks for so, setting yeah, up the context. Know, yeah, Richard? We, we, saw a lot of, we saw a lot of confusion around the choice, especially there was a lot of uh, like YouTubers who played it, and they were like, there is no good ending, and that threw them. Like, they expect mm. when they play narrative games, like your um, Telltale games or David Cage's games, they expect to get a good ending, a bad ending, and like a, a neutral ending or whatever. Um and in this one, there are only two bad endings, and I think that threw mm -hmm. that threw a lot of people. Um, and it's that's kind of that is the point. Like the point of the story is that in some situations, you just cannot have a good ending where everyone survives and everyone is happy. Like uh, spe specifically in this situation, you can only make a choice about what happens to yourself. Um, is that right, Tony? Yeah, definitely, hundred percent. 
Yeah. Okay. And I, I think it's interesting. Um, you know, one of the things we talked about yesterday was kind of expectations going into games. This whole idea of like, how much should you know about a game ahead of time, watching a trailer, reading up on it, or going into it blind? And, and, and some of that depends, obviously, somewhat, I guess, on the length of the content as as well for kind of the expectation of what people are going to be involved uh in can you talk a bit about the reaction this game has received i guess both both not not only on the the narrative front but also mechanically because you know even in our early conversation there was some people were like well the visual novel game i think you guys saw my kind of opinion on this is the the term game i think is a, a, a long spectrum and i i appreciate love this whole kind of uh, minimalist interactivity, even from changing camera angles and making dialogue choices to, to to maximum activity. And so, what's been the reaction to the the gameplay as well as the narrative that you guys have seen? Can, can I ask a question first? Yes, please. Did, did you did you know what did you know about the game going in? Did you did you just observe it on its face value um, of what there is on the store page and the trailer, uh, which is kept quite vague, or or did you hear hear about it through someone else, and you were you were told that there was a deeper level to it? So traditionally, I, I'm the kind of individual that's lurking on every website, Indie Games Plus, like every indie website imaginable, to try to get um, you know score my next fix, so to speak. Um, mm. And I honestly can't quite remember. As you know, we have we're covering so many games that I can't remember quite the first time. Sorry about that. Quite the first time I had heard about it, I want to say. It was either Indie Games Plus or it was through the just like sc- scoping through the racial justice bundle. But I had not watched mm. anything about it ahead of time or I only read the basic description because I wanted to go into it uh, blind. And I didn't know explicitly the relationship between Night Fisherman or Outcast Lovers. Is there a reason yeah, you asked that? Yeah, because we, we kind of we struggle with that all the time. Like we, we want our games to be uh approachable mm-hmm. so we so we, there's, a, there's a balance but there's a fine line between being explicit about what is what the content is uh and about making the game appear as something that a steam gamer would it would enjoy mm. say for example a fishing game and then throwing them completely for a loop and giving them something that they don't expect but might might enjoy um in a different way yeah the reaction has generally been um, positive. Uh, I think both games, I did a bunch of stats the other day, and both games average about an 80% um, user score across uh, a bunch of platforms. That's great. It's been somewhat made more negative. It was higher than that, but um, we got brigaded by 4chan because of the political content. Mm. Um, which, honestly, like they have to play the game to renew it, to review it. So, <laughs> <laughs> like... Good. <laughs> mm. um, we we fully expected that, that sure. going in, into Steam. Yeah. Like we know that itch is very open to this sort of content, and and when we when we when we applied to join Steam with our games, we knew that we were going up against uh, a brick wall essentially, and yeah. we've come across it pretty well. Like the Night Vision has done pretty well. But people have people have generally been really positive about it. I feel like more so than other games that we look at that are in the same scale. Uh, we get polarizing views. So it's either people coming on and saying, this is leftist propaganda, or this is just um, Inglorious Bastards um, 
and there's no reason why you should have recontextualized this or that kind of thing. It'll be very negative. Or or they'll be like screenshotting Richard's tweets and then like <laughs> calling him out uh, for like shaming reviews or something. And then um uh but then we have really positive stuff where people are just like probably if they already agree with the game's politics, but people find it very, very affecting, very moving. Mm-hmm. And uh also uh we've had a reasonable number of people who have like reached out or uh, written reviews or joined our Discord to talk to us or whatever who have mm-hmm. immigrant experiences mm-hmm. or have experienced British nationalist racism um, that appreciate what we're doing. Um, we've we've not had... We, we kind of considered that maybe um, we, we would have people who do have those experiences but that we're going to come at us and be like, you know, who are these white boys? Um, mm. But that hasn't happened. I think which means we probably did a good enough job. Um, but at the end of the day, like, we're just making stuff that feels true and we have very little budget. Um, so we can't necessarily, like, go and hire loads of people that are not ourselves. We've only got ourselves to make the stuff. So I, th- I think it's important, to, Tony, that we say, like, we we have sensitivity readers that we, that yeah. we work with. Um, we have our Discord members. We have mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they all work together to make sure the the stuff we're putting out is authentic and and it is meaningful. That's I an excellent there's point. A, there's a there's a there's a thing that's more interesting, I think, that's further than that, which is that we pitch the stories to ourselves mm. that we are equipped to tell. So you'll notice so far that you don't play as the refugee boy. Yes. In either Nightfish or the Outcast levels. And that's because we we're not refugees. We can't tell necessarily the texture of his story. But what we can talk about is the experience of being a British person and seeing this inhumanity occur and w- wanting and needing to respond to it. So we definitely can talk about those things, which is what we choose to. Um, and that includes, you know, depicting and writing characters who have experiences different than our own. But I feel like we're not telling their stories for them. We're telling stories about British people responding to their existence, which is its whole other separate thing that needs to be dealt with. <laughs> yeah. And I think people hearing you all say that, I think it, it, it shows also an appreciation for the fact that these things can be these aren't just kind of like window dressing or like sensational um backdrops in which to set stories right we kind of see that oftentimes is the case i mean somewhat i guess you could say like with how some of the triple a's like maybe ubisoft kind of flirts with like the political or or something as like a backdrop to just dip their toes in in order to storm washington and the white house in this game but it's not political yeah exactly stuff like that or even uh deus ex i guess with their kind of um cybernetic apartheid kind of component i think is is worth mentioning um there how about to the question as far as uh, you know defining this as a game or not uh, i know you haven't answered that directly but richard you kind of talked about the when you were talking about the production of it you said this kind of even started off in your mind kind of almost as like an, an animation uh, like a animated story so to speak I, I don't know if i'm referencing that correctly um but i don't yeah. know if that helps us answer that question or not so, so i mean as long as i was working in vr which was like uh four years we were always doing linear narrative content 
that where you had no control over the gameplay at all. And that was, I guess, primarily um, a, like a production cost thing. Mm -hmm. We wanted to produce the highest quality work. And the more you branch the story, the more you're limiting yourself in terms of um, how much polish you can put on each element. Mm. So a couple of the big projects we released were, one was called Abe, which is now getting a re-release um, and maybe even a film. And and that was written written and created by Robin McClellan. And we, we created the VR port for it. Um, another one was Dispatch, which came out on all the Oculus devices. It was it was published by Oculus themselves as part of um, Story Studios, which was quite a prestigious group at the time. And I definitely recommend checking out Dispatch. Yeah, um, it looked amazing. Uh, yeah, it's pretty. It was pretty interesting. Uh, that's on YouTube, and it's it's about twenty minutes long. It's uh, like four episodes. I think it started originally as five, um, and it's stark black and white wireframe um narrative uh, animated narrative about what is it what is it to be a 99909 dispatch caller and to be hearing uh someone in a moment of panic and to be responding to responding to them and being sort of their only source of comfort so it's it's kind of a combination of of that but also kind of a um like a murder mystery kind of mm. true crime story com combined so i definitely took a lot from from that in terms of uh how we were constructing these stories and straight off the bat i wanted to i wanted to make animated short films in game engines because and you've seen this in the in the recent times um like pixar and everyone is is now working in game engines they mm -hmm. built their own game engines for rendering because it's so efficient for lighting and rendering. Uh, I, I was like very much at the forefront of pushing the way that people are making animations uh, in real time. And I pitched a couple short film ideas to Tony. Tony pitched a couple back. We went through pre-production on that. Um, and then we kind of like, we settled on Ring of Fire, mm -hmm. which is uh it's a digital adaptation of the board game sherlock holmes consulting detective you got, you got to my question <laughs> i knew I, I i knew that was the case okay yeah. I'm, I'm so glad i'm so glad to hear that because that's what so upcoming question so we we played me and my friends had played consulting detective for like six months and that, that each case you play is pretty epic it's like yes it takes about three to six hours over an evening and uh, you're so exhausted while you're going through it that like you kind of take turns in who's leading the investigation and who's taking notes and who's looking in the telephone directory and stuff. Um, it, it is mentally engrossing. And I really recommend you, you watch the Shut Up and Sit Down YouTube yeah. review of it. Because I think it's really well guys. produced. Um, and I, I remember at some point, I, it might, I might have been listening to uh, a, a podcast, I think, with Sean Bannerman or, or one of those guys. Uh, and they were folks. like, yeah, Idle Thumbs. And, and they were like, I really want to see a consulting detective game made by Campo Santo, made by the guys who wrote The Walking Dead and Firewatch. Firewatch yeah. uh, and I was like, I really want to see that too. <laughs> uh, so 
I started working with my friend um, who's a programmer on making just at the time, like I wanted to make a companion to Consulting Detective that was an app that you could just type in your search result into and it give you the results you wanted. And then I brought, brought the idea to Tony and we were like, should we make this a full game? And yeah. you were totally into it. <laughs> and we spent a long time uh, on pre-production for that. We did yeah. reams and reams of concept art. Uh, we built a whole prototype. We spent about two years pitching it okay. to publishers. Mm. And uh, the the way we had it implemented at the time was all keyboard and mouse-based. So you had to physically type into uh, into a search bar the results you, uh, to get your results, kind of like your Google search or whatever. Um, it, it's most similar to Her Story or mm -hmm. um, Hypnospace Outlaw. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I, um, sh I should also recommend to you all, I don't know if you actually saw, but two weeks we did a developer interview with um, Tim Scheinman, who's uh, based out of Brighton in, in the UK. Uh, and he developed a game recently uh, that you can find on Itch called Family. Uh, and he's doing oh, yeah. a follow-up yeah. and it's uh it's an oh, excellent yeah. game that he's kind of um he's kind of pulling on that whole moniker like an Ober like game um referencing yeah. lucas pope's um return of the Ober din and papers please so that's worth mentioning um i can show the R ring of fire now uh i know we're kind of flipping <laughs> around here a bit i don't know if that would help i also was thinking you guys might be inspired but i think you were developing this beforehand, but like games like Chronicles of Crime or Detective on the board game front, if you haven't seen those before, those employ kind of a mm. digital uh, component as mm. well. And uh, Potions and Pixels is equal lovers of board games as we are video games. So um, we love seeing that. Um, maybe before we get to Ring of Fire, so just to kind of go back a bit, if somebody, when somebody talks to you guys about like the definition of game or not, Richard, it sounds like you're not too fixated on that and you don't really care. Is that, yeah, is that a fair I, statement? I, I found it quite frustrating when you guys were discussing this in your, in your show. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> tell me about it. I, I, what I was frustrating no, about no it? No interest in talking about I, it. So. I hate, I hate, mm. hate that question. Uh, cause it's only ever semantics. Mm. And, uh, I came to the conclusion when I was, um, studying philosophy. That if you try and define anything, you can always, always, always argue your way out of any definition because um, there just are no actual hard and fast uh, definitions for things. Like the dictionary way of thinking about things where a word or a concept means precisely just this one thing and no other things additionally Sure, um, just doesn't exist. So like... Yeah, I hear you. I, I majored in philosophy times. as well, and I remember, I can't remember who, but the philosopher that, uh, one of his more recent works, or recent meaning with the last 50 years or so, um, was the, looking at uh, the definition of games and like sports and like what, what fit. Yeah, what, I studied what, the exact same thing. Yeah, what, what <laughs> definition. I, I hear you on, on that. Um, so, I, so for me, like, yeah. if, it, if, it's, if it's treated as a game, if it's made with the intention of being a game, and most importantly, if it is in the context of a game, then it's as good as a game. Um, like, and you know, our, our, our games are going on Itch and Steam, um, where games are sold, plus some other things. But fundamentally, like, it's an interactive bit of software that is for, let's mm. say, entertainment purposes. Um, 
and uh and you know it walks like a game it talks like a game um maybe it's not overly gamey it's not the strongest example of a game it's not your socratic kind of ideal of a game but um uh you know it's, i think it's so close that it does i yeah. think the, the distinction probably doesn't matter i'm i'm more interested in uh genres and subgenres i, I think we yeah. we're not really trying hard enough in the same way we have in music to actually define how games are categorized into subgenres um yeah. like right now if i put up a game on steam every single game we we make comes under the category adventure and there Story is rich yeah there there is no like good word to describe the stuff we're making and visual novel is the closest but there was a, there was a lot of arguments going on on twitter recently about how visual novel is a dirty word in the western culture mm. and um that like technically mass effect is a visual novel but no one wants it wants to pretend it's not and no one wants to believe it is because it's considered um dirty yeah and so it is instead it is an interactive fiction or it is story rich um which i think is yeah not, i understand not y'all's way. frustration and i i I, I thought that this would be the response um, to that that question specifically. Um, I still think it's something that worth like discussing long term for this medium because this medium is still relatively young, kind of in its in its infancy, so to speak. Uh, definitely compared to other uh, forms of art and entertainment. Um, and I, I think you know, as as much as it's important to maybe to create new labels or to defy labels, um, it does help to kind of get a better understanding of of kind of the experiences that people are are having. I guess maybe maybe it is a bit too shallow just to be like game or not because oftentimes people are dismissive and I get that frustration because you don't want a situation where people are like, "Well, it's not really a game." and then they just kind of like put it in, in its own separate box. Um but I think that whole idea even to Tony to your point, you did say like interactive and I think there is an expectation. So kind of to play devil's advocate here for for a moment <laughs> is you know, we have been playing a lot of these um kind of uh, labeled visual novels as part of our series. And there are questions about like the levels of interactivity. In fact, you'll notice that even week to week, we've had usually at least one type of game of this category on. And there's been kind of a mixed reaction. Some people are saying, well, it's not interactive enough for my tastes. Or I, I guess I should say, uh, you know, one of the strengths of this medium is the ability to interact. And so um, I guess what I'm asking here is, to me, it seems still like a fair criticism that people can level and say, like, you know, that there is uh, maybe not a, a cartoonish, like, expectation of, like, pure being able to just, like, hero fantasy with the child or the fisherman or all that. But a type of level of interactivity is kind of expected, so to speak, in, in, in this medium. So I guess how do you all respond to that? And then I promise the next thing we're going to do is talk about the camera uh, controls as part of the... As part of the interaction, because sure. I know Amar has been been holding on to that question, and I know we've been going over time. So I hope you guys are you guys still okay? For a, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm good. Okay, I'm good. This, I'm this just is great. Gonna, I'm gonna take a thirty second break if that's okay. Okay, pop to Lou. Is that all right? Please go for it. Absolutely, <laughs> Richard. You take the question. Okay, so I think what's interesting to talk about here is um, uh, Tony could talk about this better, but how linear our games are. Like tradition, traditionally, if you were to come across them, you would think. It's very linear. There's no mm. exponential branching. You don't end up with um, like 10 different outcomes. 
And there's a there's a sense uh, from some players that that makes it less of a game. But I mean, if you were like the the primary point is for us to tell a good story. Yes. And if we think if we think that having multiple choices is going to give you a better story, then yeah, we'll probably do it. But it's a it's a way up between telling the author's story that we want to create, um, how much time we want to spend on it, and like giving you the sense of agency that you have control over the story. Because you can have, there are plenty of interactive fictions out there that branch like spiders' webs into thousands of different multiple endings, but uh, if they don't communicate the choice properly as mm. being uh, a real choice, as being ha- having like actual um, impact on the story, and it, and it doesn't tell you that something has happened and you have branched, then you won't notice it. And so it might as well be a linear story. But you may end up ending the game early, or you may end up with a result that you don't really feel completely happy with. Yeah. Um, it is like writing a branching story is no no harder or easier than writing a linear story. It's just it's the way you want to approach um, creating that particular game. Yeah, I love what you said there because I think that's important to state that you you guys obviously had a um, a defined experience you wanted to, to to convey and you delivered it in in this fashion and not every experience requires to to reference the last you know few sentences we were saying with this conversation not everything requires like a, you have to have this level of interaction or you have to deliver the experience this way so i really love and mm-hmm. appreciate what you all are doing there i will ask one more uh, thing about that before we kind of we, we get quite a few of these questions and comments in here is um if oh and thank you bardbastic for the subscription thank you so much we really appreciate that uh thank you bardbastic um an MVP in the potions and pixels community really appreciate that you, you are the man for sure. Thank you. Um, t- to that question, what can I ask you all? What are the benefits in your mind of making this a game versus simply an animated short? Like what to what to you is the is the actual difference that the player is experiencing, and why did you choose to deliver it? through the interactive game medium versus just simply uploading this as a, um, as a, you know, a video built in, in unity, for example. Well, we have actually considered the option several times okay. of just uploading it as a video built in unity, uh, or, ju- or just like, you know, recording a, a canon playthrough that we just do or something. Um, but, so I, th- I think there's a, bun- a bunch of like arty reasons that we could give, um, like the interactivity is somehow better for um, engendering like empathy in the mm. player or something because it's forcing you to actually make that choice. And there's been counter arguments to that, but I do I do still buy into it. I think that's the case. Like um, I think uh, it is more compelling to have to choose between like ethical things. Um, that you're invested in in a game sure. yourself than watch a character do it for the most part. Um, watch a character do it that you're not controlling for the most part. But then there's also other things like they're just 
there is no financially sound market for short film. No. Um, it doesn't exist. So if you want to do that, you need to make it interactive and make it into short game experiences. And even then, there's not really much of a viable market. We're working on it, but yeah. there's not much. But it, it's it's more viable. People are more likely to be exposed to that. Like when you when people go to the cinema or go on um, Amazon to like watch a uh, like a premiere of a film or something. Um, those are very, I guess, Hollywood's equivalent of AAA's bases. And you don't get indie films running, like I'm talking short films, student projects, also running in the cinema. Mm. But Steam, you do get those things. You can have our game side by side with an Ubisoft Watchdogs game or something. uh, That they can coexist and both present their value uh, side by side. So I think it's more possible in games. Also, not artistically interesting, but we really like games. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so we're making games. And <laughs> so, so yeah, if we want to say something, then it's going to be told through the game format uh, in the best way that the game format can do it that we can think of. Yeah. Um, and that's it. So there's real dumb answers to that question, but like no, I, I I've got one extra cool. point. Yeah, is, please, Richard. If if you're if you're making a five minute short, that would take you six months or so to to fully model at rig animate everything, render and light. But we can make five minute shorts that are really just thirty seconds um, of actual content, but spread out with. Um, other other things like the text or yeah. the interaction, and so the actual work effort there gets um, gets stretched out and can go further and can give you more content uh, for the amount of time we put in, which is what, really the way we're able to produce so many games in a year, whereas we may any other otherwise have produced like I don't know six thirty second shorts or sure. something on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. which is completely unmonetizable. Yeah. I love this and I think again just to, just to reiterate I think all all of us um those who are who are watching or through who are hoping with Indie Game Club and through some of the conversations we're having people kind of expand their um their scope of what of uh, of what gaming interactivity has to offer um and may experience things like these uh games that you guys have created that they may not have known ahead of time. We've we've gotten quite a few messages from folks who have told us like, hey, that we're we're so glad we we were able to tune in and discover these games because uh, this wasn't necessarily on our radar ahead of time. And um, expanding people's views of interactivity. I mean, we reference Bandersnatch, for example, on Netflix. This whole idea that people want to kind of have some level of agency, want to jump into the story, into your um, to your points about empathy and sympathy, like the components there of being within the specific character roles. Uh, we have Omar saying, um, you can learn more from this game than reading all the news out. Teaches sympathy via games. Um, and uh, Tempest 636, I think this might have been referencing Mass Effect to Richard's point. He says it has RPG shooter mechanics and visual novel mechanics, true. Uh, Omar saying it's hard to market it without giving a point of reference. If you haven't already, please follow the show on anchor.fm. You can also follow us on Twitter. Farfew Giants is at Farfew Giants. 
Richard is at Animtree. Tony is at Anthony underscore DE underscore Fault. You can also follow me at Saintly Stewart. The podcast is also supported and hosted on the PlayDiaries.com website. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.